God in heaven, we thank you for the ways you've been with us this morning already, Lord, in our interactions with one another, Lord, in the singing and worship, and God, now as we hear from your word, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us by your spirit, that we would be open to hearing whatever it is that you have to say to us, that we would have open hands towards you both willing to give up what we are grasping onto that we need to give up and also receiving from you whatever it is you have for us today. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The good news of the gospel of Jesus is that we can not only be saved from the consequences and punishment of our sins through the forgiveness that comes through Jesus, but also through the work of the Holy Spirit, we can be set free from those sins. In Christ, not only are we forgiven from the things that we've done, but we're set free from them too. The the big theological word for this is sanctification. We're being made pure and holy Um, over time as we walk with Christ. And this this sanctifying work is, is a deep work in us. We know that in our lives, there are some sins that are very obvious. They're, they're out in the open. We wrestle with them, addictions, sexual sin, outbursts of anger, stealing, lying. The ancient church fathers and mothers, they called these gross sins. And by gross, they didn't mean like icky. They meant blatant or obvious or deliberate. Outward actions that maybe even the world around us, non-believers, they know that those actions are wrong. These are gross sins. And then there's also more subtle and and sometimes unconscious sins in our lives. Uh, Times when we, we don't do the thing that we know that we should do. Or we do a right thing, but we do it for some wrong reason, some selfish reason. And then there are some even more subtler in in our hearts where our heart, because it's infected by sin, has these inclinations towards pride and selfishness that we sometimes just can't see working itself out in our day-to-day life. And I, I want to remind us that today that God is at work purifying, from all of, purifying us from all of these things. From those outward, gross, obvious sorts of sins that we commit, as well as to the things that we may not always be conscious of. The Lord wants to reveal those things to us so that we can be set free from them. He wants to purify us from all of that. Today we're going to look at the story of the judge Ehud in Judges chapter 3. I encourage you to turn in your Bibles there. Judges chapter 3. In this story, there is an unexpected hero named Ehud who wins a decisive victory for Israel by assassinating the fat king Eglon. And as we hear this story, I want to show some of the ways... Um, that this story of God delivering Ehud and the Israelites from Eglon, how that relates to how God wants to deliver us from evil. God is in the business of forgiving you and me for the sin and evil that we've done. 
And he is also in the business of setting us free from those things too. He doesn't only forgive us of our sin. He sets us free from our sin. He delivers us from evil. After the first judge that we heard about last week, Othniel, after he was done doing his work that God had called him to, Israel has a time of peace. And after that time of peace, we then enter back into that, into that cycle that we heard about in Judges chapter 2 and that we're going to hear repeated over and over again throughout this book. It is this cycle of God saving or sending a deliverer about Israel, then having a season of peace and prosperity. And that peace and prosperity then leads the people of Israel to apathy and to compromise with the world around them. And then they begin to rebel and begin to, to follow the idols around them. And then because of that, they begin to experience the consequences of their sin. They experience famine and plagues and war and slavery and oppression. And then after that, they confess and they turn back to God. They repent and then God sends another deliverer. And this is a cycle that we're going to see repeated quite a few times through this book. And so we come then to the next story after the uh, God delivering Israel through Othniel. And we come to the story of Ehud in Judges chapter 3, verse 12. I want to read verses 12 through 14 to begin. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. The people's rebellion and apathy leads then to God giving power to Eglon, one of Israel's enemies. Did you hear that? That God gave power to Eglon. And this is important for us to notice, that God raised up Eglon to be against Israel. This is something in this story about the way that God is at work in the life of Israel that we need to consider if we're going to understand what God is up to in Israel's life at this time. God is at work giving Israel over to their enemies like Eglon. God gives Eglon the power and the authority to make these alliances with Israel's enemies so that they will stand against Israel at this time in their nation's history. Early on in the book of, of Joshua, the, the book right before the book of Judges, where Joshua and the, the, the nation of Israel begin to conquer the promised land, there's a story early on in that book, right after they conquer Jericho, where Joshua encounters the commander of the army of the Lord. Do you remember this story? It's in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. It says this, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so.
Joshua sees this man, he knows this man is unique, and he goes and he approaches him, and he realizes that he is encountering the commander of the armies of the angel of the Lord, and he asks him, whose side are you on? Are you on Israel's side, or are you on the Canaanite's side? And the answer that the commander of the armies of the Lord says is neither one. And so the question for Joshua and for all of Israel from that moment forward is whether or not they are going to be on God's side. Whether they will be faithful to the covenant relationship that God made with them. And when they are, we see that they experience victory over their enemies. And when they aren't, the warrior angel of the Lord points his sword toward Israel. In the scriptures, we see that God establishes this unique covenant relationship with Israel. But that relationship doesn't make them immune to the consequences of their sin and to experiencing the anger of the Lord when they sin against him. In fact, I would suggest that because they had this unique relationship with God, that it actually uniquely exposed them to God's anger. When I see other people's kids misbehaving, if I notice or care at all, at most it's kind of an annoyance. But when I see my kids get be disobedient over and over again, that's when I get angry. It's the relationship that exists between me and my children that when they are disobedient, our relationship becomes strained or broken. It's in their disobedience because I am in close relationship with them that I become angry. I think the impression that many people have of the God of the Old Testament is that God is always angry, that he's unpredictable, and that he flies off the handle all the time. And that's simply not the story that the Bible tells to us about who God is. When the Bible tells us about God's anger, it tells us that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In other places in the Bible, it tells us that God is love. God is love. Love is who he is. The Bible does not say that God is anger. God gets angry, but anger is not a part of his eternal character. Before the creation of the world, when he existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he wasn't angry ever in that time. It was a perfect relationship of love. God's anger is real in the scriptures, but it is the result of his love for his people plus their disobedience that breaks the relationship that they were made for. Can I say that again? God's anger is the result of his love for his people plus their disobedience that breaks the relationship that they were made for. And so we read about this pattern in Israel's history over and over again in the book of Judges and then also throughout Israel's history where God has established this relationship with them. They act in rebellion against him. He becomes angry and he then turns them over to some other nation in order to call them back to himself. God turns them over so that they will turn back to him, so that they will turn to him. So in this story, God gives authority to Eglon and his allies to conquer the Israelites. And what we see in Eglon's victory is that it was particularly humiliating because Eglon conquered the city of Palms, 
which is the nickname for the city of Jericho. Do you remember Jericho? Jericho was the first city that Israel conquered when they went into the promised land. And now Eglon and his allies have captured Jericho away from the Israelites. This was the city where God miraculously um, commanded them to walk around the city and to blow their trumpets. And then God miraculously brought, brought down the walls of Jericho. And here, in that first place where they had a victory in the promised land, we see that now Eglon has taken over this one city. So now the people are not simply oppressed. They've been completely humiliated. In that very city where God did a great miracle for them, they've now lost that city. And so they begin to experience the oppression and humiliation at the hands of Eglon, and they do what they always do in Judges. They cry out to God, they turn to him and repent, and they ask for help. And God helps. He sends a deliverer named Ehud. So let's listen now to the rest of Ehud's story. In Judges chapter 3, going to read for you verses 15 through 23. This is an incredible story. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer. Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite, The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king said, Quiet, and all his attendants left him. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. And as the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade which came out his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. And then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked, and they said, He must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. And they waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them, and there they saw their Lord fallen to the floor dead. While they had waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down, and taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, they allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not a man escaped. And that day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Ehud is an interesting character. As I've been reading the book of Judges over the last three or four months, this, for me, has been the story that sticks most clearly in my head. There's just so many great and interesting details in this story of Ehud. 
He's introduced at the very beginning. Um, our English translations say that Ehud was a left-handed man. But in the Hebrew, it literally says that Ehud was weak in the right hand. Isn't that interesting? That this is either uh, the Hebrew expression for left-handedness, weak in the right hand, or it may also be that Ehud may have had some sort of deformity or handicapped in, handicap in his right hand. Either way, the fact that Ehud, the first description of him is that he was weak in some way, tells us that he would not have been the kind of deliverer that people would have expected. Leaders and deliverers aren't supposed to be weak in any way. And here, the first description that Judges gives to us is that Ehud was weak in some way. But in spite of this weakness, Ehud is very decisive in this story. He takes action. He forges an 18-inch sword. This is how long it would have been. Um, Jeff Ferrier forged this for me this week. So, Jeff, thank you very much for our... Our visual aid. This is how long Ehud's sword would have been. Would have strapped it to his right leg, snuck into the king's uh, room, and then plunged this into his belly and left it there. Ehud is decisive in this story. He takes the tribute to the king, he takes the taxes to Eglon, and I think Ehud must have been a very unassuming kind of man. Because the guards out there aren't concerned about Ehud and killing their king. Eglon isn't concerned about Ehud killing the king. Maybe it was because of the deformity in his right hand, or they could tell that he was weak in some way. They're not concerned. Ehud is not a threat to them. And so we see in this story that Ehud uses that weakness. Whatever it was that was so unassuming about him, he uses that to his advantage. Because he wasn't perceived as a threat he finds a way into the king in order to do this thing that God has called him to do. And then he sneaks out and he gathers all the people of Israel together. And they go and they have a battle against the Moabites. And then Moabite, the Moabites become subject to Israel. And it said that after Ehud's victory, that Israel experienced peace for 80 years. That's a really long time. Like a lot of people were born and then died all in that time of peace. And I think that's important for us to remember as we read through these books, we just kind of go from one verse to the next and one story to another for us to see that there was a long period of peace and a long period where these cycles begin to generate um, over and over again. So I want to ask today that what does the story of Ehud have to teach us about faithfulness to Jesus? And I want us to consider the story of Ehud today as a story that teaches us how to overcome sin in our life. The Bible tells us that sin is deadly. Sin is not just a problem. It is the problem in our life that separates us from God and keeps us from this relationship with him that we were made for. It's not just a minor irritation. It's the problem that separates us from God. In Paul's letters, he tells us that we, were, that we are dead in our sin. Not bruised or scraped or even maimed or injured. Paul says we are dead because of our sin. Spiritually flatlined and unable to respond to God. 
Sin is this great problem that we have that God then makes a way for us to overcome through his forgiveness and through his sanctification. And so today what I want to do is I want to talk really plainly about doing battle and killing those gross sins in our lives. As I talked earlier, there are these sometimes these unconscious and hidden sins that are tucked away deep in our hearts that sometimes we not, may not be aware of. But today, I don't want to talk about those. I want to talk about the gross, obvious, outward actions that we commit that keep us from relationship with God. And I think that Eglon, in his humiliating victory over Israel at Jericho, in his oppression of the Israelites, in his own physical girth and fatness, that he serves as a picture or a metaphor of those big, obvious, blatant, flagrant sins that are in our lives. And the way that God uses Ehud to kill Eglon, I think offers some help to us as we consider how to overcome those big, blatant, gross sins in our lives. When we first moved into the house that we live in uh, right now, at some point a previous owner had laid a bunch of gravel in one of the side yards. They didn't want to tend to that part of the yard for whatever reason. They never planted grass there. Not sure why they did it, but it was just all gravel over there. And they, they did that, of course, to kind of keep weeds down. But eventually, over time, over years, those weeds have a way of growing up. And so over the years, um, every April or so, I would look out the window and I would begin to see weeds grow. And I would just ignore them. And after about three or four weeks, there would be weeds over there that were about up to my waist. And eventually, I would get up the energy to go and to take care of them. And when you go back there and you have that kind of situation in your yard, you take up these big weeds and you start feeling like you're doing some pretty good work. But underneath those big weeds are also some very small weeds. <laughs> And in our side yard, at least, there was gravel. So the, the soil there really wasn't good for growing anything. So over the years, um, I've done a lot of work over in that side yard to take out those weeds, to eventually get out all the gravel, and then to eventually prepare the soil so that we have grass over there now. But it took time. And it's important for us, before we get to some of those unconscious, hidden kind of sins in our life, that we take care of the really obvious, blatant ones first. And so that's what I want to talk about today. I just want for you to consider for a moment, it's probably going to be very easy for you, just to bring to mind today what is that very blatant, flagrant, obvious sin, that gross sin that seems to have grabbed you in your life, if not now, at some point in the past. Just bring that to your mind for a moment. Brothers and sisters, what I want to remind you today is that God wants to help you get rid of that thing. He has more and better for you than that. And it won't be until those big and obvious things are out of the way that he can begin to do that, that deeper sanctifying work that he also wants to do in your life. And so let's talk about how to face, how Ehud teaches us to face these big, flagrant, blatant sins in our life. And the first is this, 
to move toward God. Move toward God. In Judges, God responds to the people when they turn to him and cry out to him for a deliverer. That's where deliverance begins, when the people of God move toward God. If you've ever been a part of one of the the 12-step programs that help people walk through and uh, be set free from addictions, you know that the first two steps are admit that there's a problem and ask a higher power for help. And I think that that's what we see the people of Judges doing. We've got a problem here. We're feeling this oppression. It's because of our sin, and we are crying out to God and asking for a deliverer. This is step one and two of the 12-step programs right here in the scriptures. Admit that there's a problem and ask God for help. Amen. Amen, Sam. We see that in your life, brother. Your sin will only be overcome as you move into relationship with God. It won't be done by yourself. And the first thing that we do to overcome that blatant, flagrant, Eglon-sized sin in our lives is to admit that we have a problem and to cry out to God. Second, we see Ehud take decisive action. In the story of Ehud, he was decisive. He didn't waver. He knew what he needed to do. He took action. He forged a sword. He made a plan. He carried it out, even at great risk to himself. But he knew that it needed to be done. The sin in your life isn't just going to go away by itself. Every April, I would look out there and I would hope that those weeds would just kind of go away by themselves. But they never, ever did. If you want to be free from that sin in your life, you need to take decisive and deliberate action. It's not going to go away by itself. Action has to be taken, and that action is going to come with risks, and it's probably going to be really painful. You aren't going to like getting rid of it. One of those actions is going to be that you own your problems and admit them to other people. To bring it out into the light and to confess it to some people that you trust. It's probably going to require you to expose some things in your life that you're ashamed of. It's probably going to require you to feel the weight of what you've done. And to reckon with the damage that your actions have caused. And none of that is easy. It requires decisive, deliberate, intentional action. To overcome the Eglon kind of sins that are in our lives. Third, what we see in Ehud's life is that in his weakness, he was strong. He was left-handed and he took whatever, whatever that weakness represented for him, he considered how he could use that as a way to overcome Eglon. The truth is, you and I want to hide our weakness and our vulnerabilities We like to enter into the community in our strength. We like to be known for our gifts, for the good things that we offer to people. And that's really important. All of us need to know that we're making positive contributions to our families and to our churches and to our communities. But God often works in ways that we don't expect. And just as often as he receives glory from the right use of our gifts, he also receives glory from our weaknesses and failures too. 
because in them he shows that he is the one who is very, very strong. At the end of his letter to Corinthians, Paul says, God has given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul said that he was given a thorn in his flesh, and we do not know what that thorn was. Some suggest that it was some sort of physical ailment, perhaps poor eyesight. Others think that it may have been some sort of temptation in his life that he battled with. Others suggest that it might have been a person who tormented him. But I think there's a reason why we don't know exactly what the thorn in Paul's life was. And that's so that each of you, you and I, could identify with Paul. Because we all have one. We all have some thorn, some weakness that, as Paul said, can keep us from becoming proud. Or as we think about the life of Israel, keep us from becoming apathetic toward God and his plans for us. It reminds us of our humanity and our vulnerability and our weakness. It's the thorns in our flesh that remind us that we need to always remain dependent on God and not on our own strength. So for some of you today, as you think about that gross sin in your life, that blatant and flagrant thing, I encourage you to find a trusted and mature brother or sister in Christ and let them in on your weakness. Be honest with them about who you are, about what you've done, about your regrets, about the weight that you are feeling because of the consequences of that sin in your life. And it's in those moments when we let our weakness out, when we let our vulnerabilities be known to people around us, that we begin to experience the grace and mercy of God that Paul talks about here. And last, we can experience victory through the double-edged sword. Ehud forged a double-edged sword. There's two different passages of Scripture that I want to point us to that speaks of a double-edged sword. And the first is from Psalm 149. Please turn in your Bibles there to Psalm 149. I'm going to read verses 5 through 9. The psalm writer says, Let the saints rejoice in his honor and sing for joy on their beds. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all the saints. Praise the Lord. The psalm writer says that our praise to God, our worship is a double-edged sword in our hands against our enemy. Your praise, your worship is a double-edged sword in the face of your enemy, the devil, who wants to take your flagrant, blatant, gross sin in your life and make it a reason to separate you from God. That's what your enemy wants to do with this sin. 
In our sin, the devil lies and tells you what God would ever want your praise because you did that. He wants to use that sin to tell you that you're not worthy, that if others knew, really knew, then you would be hated and rejected. He wants to use that sin for you to remain isolated from God and from his people. But I encourage you that in light of Psalm 149, that our praise is a double-edged sword against our enemy. I encourage you that when you have failed for the thousandth time to this sin in your life, to not be afraid to still turn to God in praise. Amen. It's hard. It feels wrong. But your praise to God in the middle of your failure shows the devil that you know that what God says of you is true, not what he says of you. And even though you may not have acted like it, you are going to give praise to your father because you are his child. Your praise, your worship of God in the midst of your failure is a double-edged sword in the face of our enemy. The second passage that talks about a double-edged sword is Hebrews chapter 4. Turn with me there. Hebrews chapter 4. The writer of Hebrews says this in verse 12, Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. In Psalm 149, we're told that we have a double-edged sword to wield against our enemy. But I want to say in Hebrews chapter 4, the sword isn't something that we wield. It's something that's wielded towards us. The double-edged sword divides our hearts. The word of God divides our thoughts and our intentions. It reveals those things to ourselves and to God. I like to think of this double-edged sword in Hebrews 4 as a surgeon's scalpel that cuts in just the right place in order to cut out all that sinful cancer that's in us. But we have to be open to it. We have to read the scriptures and to allow his word to do this work in us, to allow his word to transform us, to open ourselves to it, that whatever it says about us that we will agree with. Whatever it calls us to do, that we will be obedient and do. In our battle against the big, obvious, gross sins in our lives, the sins as big as Eglon, here are some of the things that we learn from this story. First, that we need to move toward God in relationship with him. That you need to be decisive and take action today in order to overcome it. That like Paul, we need to be willing to allow God to receive glory from our weakness. So often people's failures are the very place of their greatest testimony. And God wants to do that in your life today. And then to also take seriously that we've been given a double-edged sword of praise to praise God even in our failures and weakness. And to allow the double-edged sword of his word to do the good work in our life of exposing our inner thoughts and our inner attitudes so that we can be healed. God wants to bring healing in your life today. 
Our sin and our disobedience keeps us in shame. They make us hide from God and from other people. It keeps us isolated. Today, if you know Jesus, if you know that your sins have been forgiven by him, I remind you today that through his presence, the presence of his spirit that's available to you right now, he not only wants to forgive you of your sin, but set you free from this sin in your life. All of us have experienced or are experiencing some eglon in our life, an obvious, blatant enemy that humiliates us and oppresses us. And God wants to work in your life today in the same way that he worked in the life of Israel then. And it begins by each one of us today crying out to God and asking for his help. And just like in Israel's day, he will be quick to send a deliverer. Lord, we thank you for this interesting and fascinating story of Ehud and for the way that you used him to conquer Israel's enemy. And Lord, I pray today that you would use the, the details and uniqueness of this story to help us today to conquer whatever it is in our life that is oppressing us and humiliating us. Lord, I do pray that you would set your people free. In Christ's name, amen.